0: And welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal.
1: And I'm Tracy Alloway.
0: Tracy, one of the really sort of tragic or frustrating aspects of this current crisis that I think about a lot is how good, arguably, the economic situation was for the labor market right on the uh, eve of the crisis. The uh, multi-decade lows in unemployment rate. Wages had just started to pick up basically right before this hit. A lot of things that people had wanted to see for a long time started to uh, seem like they were materializing.
1: Yeah. By a lot of measures, I guess we were at, well, nearly at full employment, but I'm not sure it's tragic, Um, maybe ironic, I, I guess. Like you wouldn't have wanted to go into the crisis with the economy already fragile, right?
0: True. That's well put. But I do think there was just a lot of frustration at, you know, how slow it was. So we had this, you know, we had mm. the crisis in 2008, 2009, and then it just took years and years and years to get back to something that, you know, economists would have called full employment.
1: Yeah. I think that's right. And I think you pointed out before that the danger with sudden increases in mass unemployment is that it does really take a long time to normalize that. It takes a long time to train people for new jobs. And meanwhile, the economy loses that expertise, loses that additional output, and it's just a bad situation.
0: Right. I think there is this view that if, you know, as we embark on this recovery, if it takes similarly long to return to something resembling normal, that'd be unacceptable. I think that's why there's probably a lot of rethinking about the role of monetary policy and the role of fiscal policy in uh, accelerating this recession, because the length of time of recovery last time was uh, pretty pretty unacceptable, not good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's that. And to me, it's also the nature of the current crisis. This is basically a in some ways, a government-mandated economic crisis. People need to stay home in order to stop the spread of the coronavirus. You don't really have a choice when it comes to shutting down your business. And so I think people are looking to the government more than they might be otherwise and asking for help with that.
0: Right. Another aspect, another sort of disappointing factor is that prior to the crisis, For a long time, there's been this big gap between black and white unemployment rates. You look at the headline unemployment rate, the unemployment rate for whites is below that. The unemployment rate for black Americans has been significantly above that. That was starting to compress prior to the crisis. And then once again, it looks like the status quo is that, you know, we just suffered another major setback on that
1: gap. Yeah, I've seen a number of statistics on this, not only for racial inequality, but it's showing up in men versus women as well. The female unemployment rate is a lot higher right now than the male unemployment rate. So it feels like the crisis is accelerating a lot of the inequality trends that, that we saw in previous years.
0: Right. So there are a lot of different issues for the uh, Federal Reserve and other policymakers to think about as they uh, embark on accelerating this recovery. I want to bring in our guest. Very excited to talk to her. We're going to be speaking with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. She represents the 7th District in Massachusetts, and she's, among other things, the recent co-author of an uh, op-ed at CNBC about the need for the Fed to focus specifically and think more about the black unemployment rate, talking about how monetary policy in the past has contributed to inequality along race. And so we think of monetary policy as being this sort of neutral thing, or we think of monetary policy as just uh, affecting the economy in general and the need for other policies to address race-specific issues. But perhaps there is more that the Fed could do. So without further ado, I wanna bring in uh, Congresswoman Presley. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Good to be with you. Thank you for your interest.
0: Absolutely. So to start off, in your view, racial inequality in this country has uh, numerous causes. But when it comes to monetary policy and the Federal Reserve, how, in your view, has uh, monetary policy contributed to the gap between the success of whites in the labor market and the success of blacks and other uh, non-white minorities?
2: Sure. Well, first, let me just, you know, um, acknowledge that we find ourselves in a moment of national reckoning on racial justice and every institution needs to address its role in perpetuating systemic racism and what it can do to be a part of the solution and the fed should be no exception in that regard you know perhaps donald trump does not want to acknowledge the contributions of john lewis and what i would consider our other founding fathers but they've given us the blueprint on this you know dr martin luther king jr spoke about the fact that when uh, black americans are unemployed it's considered a social problem when white Americans are unemployed, it's considered uh, a depression. Uh, that's what he said in 1968 in addressing the Memphis sanitation workers. And, of course, um, he also went on in that same speech to say, what does it profit a man to sit at an integrated lunch counter if he cannot even afford to purchase a hamburger? And while we're speaking about the Kings, Coretta Scott King, in 1976, led over 25,000 protesters to the Atlanta Federal Reserve Bank where she declared that outside of Congress, the Federal Reserve has perhaps more power to correct our economic ills than any other agency or institution. And so um, I recently authored this op-ed laying out three steps that the Fed could take to center racial equity in its response. Um, and they have to respond, you know, not only because uh, it is uh, the federal government's uh, role uh, in a period of unprecedented hurt managing a crisis within a crisis, but they have a responsibility. Only the federal government can meet the scale and scope of this crisis and uh, play a role in ensuring an equitable economic recovery. And so the three things that we've laid out is that the Fed must expand and modify the terms of its municipal liquid facility to ensure that big corporations aren't getting a better deal than our communities. And secondly, and this is what Coretta Scott King was organizing around, the Fed must comply with the Humphrey Hawkins Act, this provision that requires efforts to reduce unemployment disparities by directly targeting the black unemployment rate, uh, which is really a much better indicator of the country's true economic health that will also prevent misguided action like raising interest rates too soon. You know, the Feds have prioritized price stability and low inflation over full employment. And then finally, uh, the Federal Reserve must not stand in the way of a federal jobs guarantee.
1: This is a really fascinating topic, and and you lay it out very clearly. I I guess my first question is, what would you say to critics who will automatically respond with, well, this isn't the Fed's role, uh, and why should the Fed, you know, it's a group of unelected officials, uh, lots of people describe them as economists sitting in an ivory tower, why should they be the ones to take this on?
2: Yeah, because they're the only ones that can. The federal government were the only ones that can play the sort of role necessary to meet the scale and scope of this crisis and its unprecedented hurt. And uh, I'm going to bring into the room another uh, um, civil rights uh, leader because uh, I've been doing a, a great deal of reading and uh, looking for fortifying and uh, you know inspiration and direction uh, at this moment. And Reverend William Barber, you know, said that we find ourselves in the midst of a reckoning. Which requires a third reconstruction. And I think that um, that reconstruction does mean everything from uh, healthcare to ensuring that every individual that is able to work um, is working and also housing. You know, adults and policymakers don't make mistakes, they make choices. And poverty is a policy choice. In the midst of this national reckoning, this is the time for a reconstructing and to be bold and will have to be in order to meet the scale and scope of the hurt Um, managing this crisis within a crisis, both a a public health crisis and um, the economic hardship that it's wrought. And of course, the crisis of Black unemployment did not begin uh, with this pandemic. It's only been exacerbated. I mean, I represent uh, one of the most diverse, vibrant, dynamic districts in the country, a seat previously held by John F. Kennedy himself, uh, one of the most progressive seats in the country, and one of the most unequal. And the Commonwealth of Massachusetts also has the highest unemployment rate in the country at 17.4%.
0: I want to go back to something you said that I thought was really interesting. And you said uh, not only should the Fed target black unemployment directly, you you said you also thought it was probably the best proxy that uh, we could have for the state of the economy. Why do you think it's the best proxy? And also just sort of flesh it out a little bit in terms of how sort of specifically looking at the Black unemployment rate could be incorporated into the Fed's mandate or just the Fed's thinking in general?
2: Well, I'll just say the bottom line for me is we can't afford to deny the Federal Reserve's role here as a potential equalizer. But we also have to confront the fact that they've been an exacerbator of racial and economic inequality. And so again, this is the tipping point in the moment where we confront that past while we also chart a new path. And so rooting out systemic racism and inequity in our economy can't happen without a key piece of that system. And it just, it requires a government-wide approach. And that has to include the Federal Reserve.
1: Mm.
2: And and just uh, picking up on my earlier comments regarding the Humphrey Hawkins Act, again, that provision requires the Fed to reduce disparities in unemployment between marginalized groups. And so at this moment, it really is about exacting every, every lever, every tool available to you. And they've not done that.
1: You mentioned this idea of a reconstruction in response to a great reckoning. I'm, I'm curious, how do policymakers such as yourself balance the need to respond quickly to what is quite a serious economic situation, with the need potentially to, to design or use the crisis as a jumping off point to redesign big picture ideas like how the Fed works, uh, like how uh, the federal government should be funding states and municipalities, how do you balance those two things?
2: I think in this moment, it's not a matter of or, it's a matter of and. Um, and so um, I seek to do both. Because the moment demands uh, that I do both. And I think I'm emboldened in that advocacy um, and in that legislating because uh, we have a mandate from the people. There's a decisive mandate uh, from the people of this country um, to move with the strength of conviction, uh, to be bold in our legislative uh, responses, to address the inequities and disparities and the racial injustices that not only persist but were created by policy. Uh, Public sentiment around issues like a federal jobs guarantee and Medicare for all and affirming housing as a human right uh, has only grown.
0: Do you think that the left or progressives have underappreciated the role of monetary policy or the Federal Reserve in advancing priorities during the Obama administration? There were long periods where seats on the FOMC were left unfilled. It wasn't a priority to uh, replace departing members. Should this be more? Uh, should do you think there is a lack of awareness um, in terms of what monetary policy can do on the left?
2: Yes, and that's exactly why I wrote the the op-ed. You know, acknowledging that I do have this platform and I want to be an effective steward of it, um, especially in this moment. It's one of the reasons why uh, I was. So excited to serve on the financial services committee to address these issues specifically, and you know I think the role of the Federal Reserve for some maybe only really came into view on the left in the the role that it played in stabilizing the world economy in two thousand and eight. More people started to think about it in that way, but you know I'm again I'm appreciative of the opportunity to serve on the financial services committee so that I can um, can lift up the role that it can play, and and it really should go without saying that all of this you know, that I'm, I'm looking for them to do must be in addition to the Fed acknowledging their abysmal record on diversity. And that can't just fall on the back of the only Black Federal Reserve Bank president and Rafael Bostic to name it and to call it out. So I'm, I'm also trying to um, provide some backup there.
1: Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about what's going on in DC uh, right at this moment. So I think we have the the second round of potential stimulus relief currently log jammed in the Senate. I should just mention that we're recording this on, uh, let's see, August 5th. So things could change. So looking back at the original CARES Act, how was that able to get bipartisan support? And what has changed between then and now? Why is it so difficult to get a second relief package off the ground?
2: Yeah, well, this Democratic uh, majority House has been able to move, you know, something like uh, four relief packages um, and they were bipartisan. And I think um, a lot of that had to do with uh, public outcry and sentiment, which is why we need people to continue to be uh, vigilant in their advocacy um, in that regard. You know, it's very frustrating. I, um, you know, daily uh, feel that we are, uh, besieged by uh, dog whistles and, uh, and and tropes and sort of a cruelty and a callousness um, that proves that many uh, people serving are completely removed and disconnected from the, the hardship and the hurt that their constituents are experiencing.
0: In terms of uh, what priorities are, I mean, uh, what do you think are the sort of absolute must-haves in this bill?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, 30 million people are still unemployed. And as I said, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts has the highest unemployment rate in the nation. Um, And so yet this Senate GOP, they want to cut unemployment benefits and they want to once again exclude our immigrant neighbors from the economic stimulus checks. And they're forcing K through 12 schools to reopen. It's shameful. It's reckless and it's just cruel. And so I think we have to extend unemployment benefits, not cut them. Um, we need reoccurring economic stimulus payments for everyone. We need to extend the eviction moratoriums. We need to cancel rent and mortgage payments. Uh, we have, we're we on the precipice of an eviction tsunami. We're talking about the disproportionate impact on marginalized groups. Um, you know, we find ourselves, what is this, the, the, early in the month of August, by August 1, 30% of Americans said that they would not be able to pay their rent for the month. Uh, that's 30% of americans 46% of black americans said they would not be able to pay their rent so economic time stops but financial time does not and even in the worst downturns people's bills will always still be due and it's just really past time that the senate acts and that they move with the urgency that reflects that
1: economic time stops but financial time does not is a really good way of putting it but just on that note and going back to to the idea of debt forgiveness how would that work Exactly. Because a lot of critics of that proposal would immediately point to the fact that, you know, landlords, as much as many people dislike them, also require income. And if they're not getting payments from their renters, that has knock on effects to the financial system. It could lead to losses for banks and things like that. How how would you uh, how would you deal with that?
2: Yeah, I mean, the point is, though, people are hurting. They need real relief now. And again, just, I, I could have too many examples to enumerate in terms of the disconnect and the cruelty and the callousness of this administration. One of the other issues that I've continued to push in terms of a robust economic recovery is the canceling of student debt. This Department of Education garnished wages and benefits 54,000 borrowers in the midst of a pandemic. People are hurting, they need real relief now. And, and might I also add that our greatest wealth as a nation is the health of our people. So the, the reason why these other choices are being made is, is to prioritize and in the best interest of the public health. And so that has to be the priority right now. And if that means that we are paying people to stay home, then that's what that means. Because we have to stave off the rate of transmission and we have to get this pandemic under control. That's number one. There's no economy without workers or consumers. And so our greatest wealth as a nation is, is the health of, uh, of its people.
0: to look forward a little bit. I know you just have a few more minutes. Um, you know, suppose uh, thinking about long term uh, economic agenda and suppose uh, Biden were to win the White House and uh, Democrats were to control both houses of Congress as is possible, thinking about where economic policy should go. I'm looking at uh, Biden's racial economic equity plan on his website. And the first two things, one is something about uh, first bullet point is about public private investment the next one is uh, opportunity zones and reforming them. And I'm curious, do you think these are smart tools or would your vision for what uh, racial economic equity, would it look different from this?
2: I just think that it's um, it needs to be bolder and it's about um, guaranteeing those most basic human rights, um, which certainly is is not a radical notion, but um, a lack of political will and um, leadership, and I think a deficit of empathy and and urgency has us where we are. Uh, And so, you know, I I think we do need a federal jobs guarantee. I think we need Medicare for all, housing, affirming the right to housing. Um, So housing justice, and then on the economic justice front, a federal jobs guarantee. And when it comes to healthcare justice, Medicare for all. In addition to all the other things I I continue to fight for, modernizing uh, the Community Reinvestment Act, You know, the fact that 98% of financial institutions continue to pass the CRA exams, but the practice of redlining persists. Uh, The Fair Housing Act, which they seek to, you know, undermine and and roll back those protections, canceling student debt, um, which I see as a racial justice issue because black students uh, borrow uh, more than any other borrower and default more. And that has everything to do with policies, which have obstructed black families ability. Um, to equitably build generational wealth. And that is also, you know, one way uh, to your, your question around um, mm-hmm. uh, Cancellation and and, and uh, people's negative characterizations of that. That's also one way to jumpstart the economy um, the average uh, borrower is saddled with about thirty thousand dollars worth of, of uh, Student loan debt uh, And so by canceling that then those are other those funds can be used in other ways to jumpstart and to invest in our economy So those are some of my priorities.
1: So I have one more question, just, just leading off from that. Why do you think so many people seem to be instinctively opposed to bailouts and instinctively opposed to policy that on the surface would appear to be good for everyone and for the overall economy? And how do you overcome that obstacle?
2: Not sure. Maybe we've been, uh, we're so used to the way things have been done for so long that um, perhaps it's a, a greater expectation and people are just used to corporations being held out and not the American people and our families and the American worker and our communities. Um, you know, But again, uh, this is the moment. Uh, we need to be disruptive and we need to build something new that is intentional about equity and, and justice. Reiterating my earlier point in terms of the mandate from the people. I mean the reason why people still continue to protest to demonstrate to mobilize to organize Yes, the tipping point was about the fact um, That we had been in the midst of a pandemic besieged by these images of of unarmed uh, black Americans being brutalized and murdered by police But that's not the only reason why people are in the streets and and that's and the reason that movement is one that is multi-generational and multiracial there's unrest in the streets because there's unrest in the lives of Americans. And that has everything to do with the role that policy has played in creating these inequities and these disparities, and in particular, these racial injustices. And so this is the reckoning. And that's why the movement has not waned. It is a sustained one. And I was speaking earlier about Coretta Scott King and, and, and Dr. King. And, um, you know, they gave us the blueprint. It is to more organize, it is to mobilize, and it is to legislate. That's what all that marching was about. So, you know, you can't say Black Lives Matter and affirm that in this moment of culture shift, but then not see that reflected in our laws and in our budgets. Those are the only receipts that matter in this moment. So if Black Lives Matter, we need to lead like it and we need to legislate like it and we need to act like it. And that includes the Fed.
0: Congresswoman, I did one last question. You mentioned the Fed because I wanted to bring it back there looking again at um uh biden's uh platform he mentions also having the fed focus more on racial economic gaps do you feel uh that powell gets this there's going to be a lot of questions at some point in the theoretical biden administration about whether he should be reappointed in your communications conversations do you feel that uh powell understands this and would it make sense to reappoint him
2: as recently i've i've been disappointed i i'm not sure that he understands um the gravity of the impact of the lack of action by the Fed and fully appreciates the power that they have and the role that they can play in addressing these racial injustices and in particular black unemployment and the racial wealth gap.
0: Congressman Presley, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Incredibly important topic and I appreciate you coming up.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Tracy, I feel like so many of these conversations keeps coming back to the question of can we really go back to the status quo after this?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the way the Congresswoman put it, the idea of a reckoning that will now lead to a reconstruction, that's a good way of thinking about it. It seems pretty clear that policymakers have a mandate to do something differently now. Um, I guess, I guess the question is, how do they do it under time pressure and how do they actually construct it and maintain that momentum?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I thought it was also really important and really interesting, uh, her continued citation of the Humphrey Hawkins Act, because Mm. people have this idea that it's like, okay, target full employment or target maximum employment and price stability without really realizing, well, then and then full employment gets redefined as just sort of like, Oh this is like what a model says employment should be before inflation takes off and as we saw during you know the post crisis era whether it was the Fed starting to hike rates I think in uh, 2015 you know they really have no idea and that's not even an insult per se to the Fed it's like these are really hard things and so the idea of taking full employment more seriously and not hiking rates just because some model says, oh, you know, pretty soon inflation might pick up to 2.1%. If we don't, I think is going to be one of the big changes. And we already see that with, um, you know, some of the commentary out of the Fed about not trying to preemptively fight inflation this time. But if you, you know, looking back at that experience, looking back at the cyclical aspect of the black white unemployment gap, perhaps this time around, actually taking full employment uh, and or getting the unemployment rate down to as low as possible, it seems like it might be taken more seriously this time.
1: Yeah, I think it would. One thing that we didn't really discuss, though, is uh, the role of the Fed on asset prices. And if you think mm. that, you know, low interest rates are going to boost asset prices in general. and But if you if you agree to that, then the vast majority of financial assets, you know, are held by rich people who are generally well off, lots of white people. And I guess there's a question around financial inclusion there as well. Like, how do you get more people to participate in a financialized economy?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, I thought you had a uh, really good question about the sort of public cynicism around bailouts. And, you know, these are all slightly different things. And the word bailout gets used um, you know, some people think, you know, stimulus and bailout and cutting rates, et cetera. But there is just a lot of cynicism towards the potential for policy to make things better for the public. And yeah. I feel like, you know, you every time the Fed does something, people point to exactly that and they're like, well, not everyone has assets in the stock market. Not everyone uh, benefits from a booming housing market, particularly in cities or particularly in places where a lot of people are renting and not um not uh, participating in that upside. And so I do think that you know obviously um monetary policy, interest rate policy has a role to play, but as the congresswoman congresswoman pointed out, it's really a sort of it's a crisis, it's an, and it's an issue that needs to be addressed at all different levels of government uh for it to work.
1: To me, it almost gets to these big philosophical questions like whether people care more about absolute gains versus relative gains, because you can argue that everyone will benefit in some way from whatever policy. But I guess in reality, if people see their neighbor, for instance, benefit more on a relative basis, I I guess people still get angry. That that feels like the the essence of the problem to me. Like whether or not you believe relative gains are more important or absolute gains. But again, big questions.
0: Yeah, no, big questions and potentially a moment of a big change. But we'll have to see. It.
1: Yeah, it'll be really interesting to have similar conversations. Hopefully, not exactly the same, but uh, more conversations on this topic next year and see how much has actually like shake, shaken out in terms of change.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay. All right. Well this has been another episode of the Odd Thoughts podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Joe Wasenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at the Stalwart. And follow our guest on Twitter, Congresswoman Iana Presley. Her handle is at Iana Presley. Follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson, at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts under the handle at podcast. Thanks for listening.